Our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. So listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to him, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the past few days, I have delighted in my social media news feed because it is post after post after post of y'all mostly posing with your I voted stickers, usually naming a polling place and how long or how short the line was, reminding us all to make a plan and you can vote anywhere when you vote early, you know. I have yet to cast my vote, but your encouragement is inspiring, and I hope that you will keep it coming. I was actually in a meeting on Thursday when we went around the virtual table to share where we have experienced joy recently, and one of the participants actually named voting as a real joy. And his testimony created a ripple effect in my mind. The first time I voted with a parent showing me the way. The first time I voted and left with a lump in my throat, overcome with the gratitude for the right to do it. The first time I stood in a line that was way too long, surrounded by people who had less time to give than I, but who hung in there nevertheless. In the past days and weeks, I've also heard a number of you describe the oddity of this election season. The shortage of yard signs is particularly glaring, as is the absence of that series of live debates between the candidates with live audiences to participate in them. This seeming silence, of course, is juxtaposed with the feeling that this is actually one of the tensest elections that we as a country have ever experienced. Just yesterday, I received notification from an old friend in Atlanta 
whose husband works for the Carter Center as a Middle East conflict analyst. Alarmed by the similarities between what is brewing in the U.S. and the Middle Eastern conflicts that he has worked on for decades, he is directing a project that aims to mitigate violence around the U.S. election, engaging networks of faith leaders and others to help reduce the risk of violence and encourage a peaceful transition of power should it come time for a transition. And all of this, our fear, our joy, our heightened sense of possibility in either direction, come with us this morning into our worship spaces where we meet this story of all stories as assigned by the lectionary. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? It sounds like a question about church and state. It sounds like an invitation to probe an interesting ethical question. Remembering, of course, that an ancient Palestinian context is quite different from our modern one. They would have had zero notion of any separation between church and state, nor any language to describe it. But still, an interesting question about the kind of relationship that the faithful should cultivate with the state they live in. As it turns out, the Pharisees are not, in fact, so interested in having an interesting conversation about these things. They are motivated primarily by their own lust for power and the infuriating way that this strange, presumptuous, table-turning, and trouble-making rabbi has gathered quite a following. By what authority do you do these things, they ask. By what authority do you speak for God? Certainly not ours. So they gang up with the Herodians, which is rather ironic because the Herodians were all about working with the Romans, while the Pharisees were pretty much about not working with the Romans. Nevertheless, they gang up with the Herodians on this occasion because it is expedient. And they ask a simple either-or type of question that betrays their motive. They are only interested in trapping him. If he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, he will lose face swiftly with his own disciples and with the crowds that are still on his side. The tax that the Pharisees refer to is a poll tax. It is an annual payment to the occupying Roman Empire that was massively unpopular amongst the subjugated Jewish people. If he answers, yes, it is lawful, he has lost the people. And if he answers, no, it is not lawful to pay that tax, well, that is grounds for being arrested and crucified. The Pharisees think that they've won. Either way he answers, they've got him. But Jesus is clever. Does that ever make your list of Christian virtues? <laughs> Cleverness? 
His answer actually harkens back to a sermon that he gave early on in his ministry when he had to establish who he was as a leader and what he believed, which in those days demanded that he clarify how he thought the Jewish people should deal with the occupying foreign power. And there were no shortage of opinions about that matter. And so in answer to that question, he gave a series of examples. You'll probably recognize them. The people certainly did. If somebody strikes your right cheek, offer the left as well. If you're sued for your coat, go ahead and give your cloak. If you're forced to go a mile, go a second. Each of those examples pointed to an interaction, not between peers, but between a Jewish person and a person of some authority in Rome, a person who is exploiting the powerlessness of the Jew. And these were everyday examples. These humiliating things happened all the time. Far from being the doormat Christianity that it's often accused of by Christians and non-Christians alike, the direction that Jesus gave there was clever and it was empowering. When you offer your left cheek to a Roman soldier, he can't slap you with the backhand slap that he would have used on your right cheek. Your turning of the cheek forces him to make a fist, which in turn signifies your equality to him. You're now a peer worthy of a true fist fight. If you offer your cloak, In addition to your coat, you are now standing butt naked in a court of law. And the person who is witnessing your nakedness is just as shamed, if not more, than you are, especially in an honor and a shame society, right? If you insist on going an extra mile, more than the Roman soldier is allowed by law to force your labor— according to the law at the time, he is then forced to beg you for its return, kind of running after you. Walter Wink is a New Testament scholar that has spilled a lot of ink on this passage. So if you want to learn a little more, dig in a little more, I would commend his writing to you. But suffice it to say, for now, the direction that Jesus gave there might be what we call in our time a creative, nonviolent solution to the problem. And it is as pragmatic as it was principled because Jesus loved these people. It was a middle way for them between fight and flight. And it is a way that has been embraced by countless oppressed people and movements in the last 100 years, especially, as they have sought to assert their humanity and demand their rights in states that lord it over them. Come full circle to this moment as Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem and nearing the end of his ministry, 
and his life, he responds to the tension in this moment in a similarly creative way, a way that reframes the issue, exposes those who seek to harm, and preserves life. Instead of answering the question outright, he asks the Pharisees to produce the coin that's used to pay the tax. It's the only coin that you can use to pay that tax. They do so immediately. And when they produce it, Jesus asks them, whose head is this on the coin? And whose title? The text moves on so quickly from here that it is easy to miss the significance. The question that Jesus asks them is actually the mic drop moment, not what comes after it. The Pharisees answer correctly. It's the emperor whose head is on that coin. Notice they don't elaborate. The title would have conferred the emperor's divinity, either naming him divine outright or as the son of God. Any Jew carrying that coin with its engraved image and divine title would have been in violation of the Torah, breaking not just one, but two core commandments. The coin was problematic for all Jews living at that time because not having it got you in big trouble with the Romans. And having it meant being in violation of Torah. So when Jesus brings the coin into this tense exchange, he is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in a way that silences them long enough for him to get away. But he's also using the opportunity to make a bigger point for any who had ears to hear. In whose likeness are you made? David Loos is one of multiple biblical scholars who has pointed out that when Jesus asks the question, whose head is this and whose title, those present, especially in the Hebrew language, in a way that's lost a little bit in the, in the English, would have recognized the scripture from Genesis, in whose image are we made? In whose image? In God's, Right? It's in God's image that we are made. Loos points out that Jesus never accuses the Pharisees of blasphemy or disloyalty, which he could have. Rather, he calls them hypocrites, those who have quite literally taken to wearing another and false likeness. They have forgotten who they are, they have forgotten in whose likeness they were made. This is the framework in which we hear the last direction 
and finally an answer to that question. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This is not support of Caesar. It is not support of the empire that will crucify him very soon. It is not support of an unethical tax system that occupies a people and then makes them pay for it. It is an acknowledgement that people of faith live in the world. And it is transformation of that world order that we are called to seek in creative ways, guided by the spirit of the living God. It is not a world that we are called to flee from, seeking only spiritual things. For the Hebrew people, a good government was always part of the picture. The book of Deuteronomy summarized the law, laying out what a nation under God ought to look like in all of its systems, especially political and economic. It talked about shared or relational power. It talked about particular concern for the marginalized. It talked about jubilee with its cancellation of debt and freeze on interest and return of everyone to their ancestral property every seven years, all in the interest of rebalancing and assuring that wealth didn't accumulate in the hands of a few for too long. <sighs> for a nation that espouses Judeo-Christian values so fervently, I keep waiting for a moderator of one of these debates to ask both of the candidates about their response to that question. That would be interesting. We're told in 2 Kings that King Josiah repented when he read the book of Deuteronomy because he realized how far the kingdom he led had departed from God's vision. And of course, the prophets called the people back to that way time and time again. They interpreted the subjugation of their land and their people as divine punishment for not living up to those ideals. This was the tradition of Jesus. And Jesus invited us to live in our world creatively, reflecting the creative answers that he gave to hard questions. To give to Caesar what is Caesar's isn't very much in the end for a people who know to whom they belong, a people who know in whose likeness they are made. And to give to God what is God's, well, that's everything. It's our bodies, it's our hearts, it's our minds, it's our treasure, it's our priorities, it's our values, it's our votes. If you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, you are giving God much, 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 much more. Because everything belongs to God, including Caesar and the kingdom that he leads. So for the living of these days, leading up to this 
election. What can we give God? What does it look like to give God all of who we are and all of who we hope to be? What does it look like for you to give to God? What is God's? Is it the reception of a grace that tames your hot anger? Is it space for an idea that never really fit with your worldview, but that feels oddly faithful? Is it yielding to that uncomfortable truth that everything does belong to God, including and perhaps especially those things that we would rather not give God? Jesus, who loves us, Jesus, who is clever and creative. Jesus, who showed us how to be in the world but not of it, invites us to receive the same truth that he reminded the Pharisees of. We are God's first and foremost. It is God's likeness in whom we are made. So give to God what is God's. It is a truth that is equally as challenging as it is comforting, I think. So thanks be to God. Amen.